All right, let's jump into our passage this morning. Um, th- this weekend, when, when Brooks was praying, you know, for those who experienced heartbreak yesterday, I wasn't sure if he was talking about heartbreak or sports, you know, like some of y'all are a little heartbroken this morning, and so let's just address the elephant in the room. This is one of those weekends that matters every year. Every year, OU Texas fans know this Sunday, like we know about this weekend every year, and we know that a bunch of crimson and burnt orange is going to invade our city, cortisol is going to go up, rivalry gets heightened, trash talk gets elevated, you don't hang out with the Hawkins until after the game. Like, it's just sort of you have your rhythms. And if you're a Christian, then you have to see each other on Sunday, and you have to be Christianly about it, right? You can't be smug or a sore loser. At least you can't act that way. And so because of that, because this Sunday fell on this calendar week, I decided to preach out of Psalm 133, which starts with, how good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. I just thought this felt like the right Sunday, rivalry Sunday, to preach. I'm only messing with you guys. It's not that big a deal. It's just a football game. But I did want to preach out of a psalm of ascent. We've been going through this psalm series, and I was thinking about, you know, we've preached on psalms of imprecatory psalms, where you're like, kind of like, God, get them. You know, we've preached on psalms of lament, where you're like, Lord, my heart is just broken. We've preached on psalms of praise and all of that. And so I thought there's this group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent that neither Martin and I had picked yet. And I thought, what a great time to choose Psalm 133, not because of football. We're not that idolatrous about it, I don't think. Or at least I'm going to pretend like I'm not that idolatrous about it. But Psalm 133 is in this group of Psalms of Ascent, and I think it's really beautiful, and I think it has a lot to teach us about what it looks like to be unified as the people of God. And so if you all will turn with me, we're going to be looking at Psalm 133 and then Matthew 12 and John 17 this morning. Psalm 133. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. And then Matthew 12, 46 to 50, this is Jesus speaking. So while Jesus was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, the one who he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then John 17, this is Jesus' final prayer in the garden of Gethsemane before he's gonna go to be crucified. And this is what he's praying to his father. I pray not only for these but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for preserving this scripture for us and the Psalms especially. Thank you for this uh, time of meditation upon it. Would you allow my words this morning to be beautiful, true, and right? Uh, would it honor you and would you allow it to strengthen and nourish us this morning? I ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. 
like I mentioned, this is a psalm of ascent. And so if you think back to the imprecatory psalms, this was kind of the hand motion Martin had. The psalms of lament are sort of here, psalms of praise. If I had to give a hand motion for this one, it'd be like this, marching up a hill. This would be the hand motion for psalms of ascent. The reason why is Psalms 120 to 134 were sung by the pilgrims, all the Israelites who were making their way up to Jerusalem for the three major festivals. And they always said they were going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sat up on a hill. So even if they were coming from the north, they would still say we're going up to Jerusalem. And they would come three times a year for the three major festivals. They had Passover or Pesach that they'd come up for. They'd have the Feast of Pentecost, Pentecost or Weeks, Shavuot, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkoth. And they would come up three times a year, and, and the whole family would come. I mean, you'd have the, the father and his sons and all of their wives and all of their children, often sometimes with some animals would come with them, as well as if they owned slaves. The whole family would be making their way up to Jerusalem by foot, by animal. And as they would go, they would recite these Psalms of Ascent. And again, there's 120 to 134, so they had several to choose from. And the themes of the Ascent were things like they would cry out to God for truth and peace, or they would ask God for protection. Very important when you're traveling by foot. Or they would ask for God's favor. And you have to keep in mind, all of these feasts were tied to the harvest. They would get done harvesting, and then they would go up to Jerusalem. And so asking God for God's favor was God's favor for the next harvest as well. There were calls for restoration for Israel. There were prayers for stability. There were calls for the protection of the oppressed. There were psalms of childlike trust. Lord, we trust in you like a weaned child, right? And then praise of a great God. And so this psalm, the one that I just read to you, this psalm of ascent, is of course about the goodness of unity. It's very obvious. It's got one theme that runs from start to finish. And it starts with this, this statement and then two similes and then a reminder of where blessing comes from. And so I want to quickly just walk through the psalm and explain what the psalm is doing because these aren't categories that we think of today. I don't know about you, but the first time I read this psalm, I thought that was gross that there was beard running down on people's clothes or oil. And so I want to explain to you, no, it's not, it's not actually gross. It's a really beautiful thing. Um, and then we'll talk about, after we explain the psalm, then I want to talk about how I think this psalm works on three different levels. And we'll talk about that. So, the psalm starts out by stating that both good and lovely is it when brothers live together in unity. In your translation, you might see God's people instead of brothers. The NIV translates it as God's people, and rather, and so do other translations. But the most natural rendering of that word in the Hebrew is just simply brothers or kinfolk, your actual family. And then we also have this callback to Genesis 1. God makes things and he calls them tov. And so here's the psalmist saying, hey, the things that are also tov are when brothers, family, can live together in unity. It's good and it's pleasing. And then he says it's kind of like, and he uses two similes. So the first one is the oil running down on Aaron's beard. Oil in the ancient world was, uh, would have been mixed with spices and used as perfume, especially in celebratory times. So if you're just out working in the field that morning, you're not going to put oil on you with perfume. There's no point. I mean, how many of y'all put on perfume and then go work out in the gym? If you're trying to meet somebody, maybe, but the rest of us, like, we don't do that, right? And so this isn't, this is saying this is a celebratory time that this oil would have been there. And the emphasis of it running down is not to say, like, it's messy. The point is, is it's an abundance of the perfume. This is a really celebratory time. You get that extra spritz on you. And the, the fact that it's running down tells us this is an extremely abundant, beautiful supply of nice perfume that's running over. 
And so they're saying, listen, the way that brothers and living together in unity, it's like this really great celebratory moment where there's an abundance of perfume. This is a really good thing. And then our second simile says, it's like dew on Mount Hebron. Now, Mount Hebron is a mountain in the north, and dew is probably not something many of y'all think about. How many of y'all consider dew when you wake up? And you're like, oh, the dew's on the ground. Anybody? You would if you lived in the desert and you planted. Dew is exceedingly important in an arid place. And so dew is something that preserves for people in arid places when there is no rainfall. So you're in a place like Palestine, you're in a place like Hebron, and that dew is what helps your land continue to produce when there is no rain. And so you may not think about dew, but ancient people did. And in fact, dew shows up all over the scriptures as a sign of God's blessing. So Isaac, when he begins to bless his son Jacob, he has a reference to dew from the heavens. It also shows us that dew is incredibly important for the harvest in Zechariah. And the absence of dew is as devastating as the absence of rain, according to Samuel, Kings, Haggai. And then it says that a king's favor is like dew upon the grass in Proverbs. When the king is being favorable to you, that's like having dew. This is how significant dew is. And perhaps most importantly, in Isaiah 26, 19, it says dew brings new life. It compares the resurrection power of God to having dew on the ground. The resurrection power of God is compared to dew. And our psalmist says, do you know what it's like when brothers can get along? It's like this resurrection blessing in our lives. And dew for Israel is a reminder that you will blossom and flourish. It's It's an incredibly beautiful psalm of what unity can do for a person, what unity is like in the lives of God's people. And then our psalm ends and it says, hey, that dew that replenishes Hermon is the same dew that will be on Zion. And by the way, Zion is the place where you will receive blessing and eternal life. It's a really beautiful psalm. Hey, it's really great when brothers live together in unity. It's like this really abundant celebratory thing. And it's also like dew, which gives us life. And by the way, you're headed to Zion and Zion's the place of blessing and eternal life. Really beautiful. So I want you to imagine you're a family large family. You live in Kadesh, which is as far south as the property of Israel, right? They get to Kadesh, and they don't get to cross over. It's 202 kilometers to Jerusalem. No Teslas. And because you have a huge family, let's say you walk four kilometers per hour. I did some math, y'all. Like, I hope you all are proud. So 202 kilometers from Kadesh to Jerusalem, you walk, the average family could probably walk four kilometers per hour, which means you have 45 hours of walking in front of you, okay, to get to Jerusalem, And as you're walking, your family starts singing these songs of ascent. And you get to this one and you say, hey, it's really good when the family gets along. It's like really good perfume pouring out over us. It's like God's dew which protects and sustains us. And that dew is all over Zion, the place that we're headed, the place of blessing and eternal life. How many of you parents wish you would have had this kind of song for your kids on road trips? Like they start squabbling, and you're like, let's sing Psalm 133 together. You ready? I think God knew what he was doing. And so you arrive at Jerusalem as a family, as the gathered people of God, united in worship to Yahweh. And unlike your pagan neighbors who think you're silly or foolish or even sometimes vile, you look around and you think to yourself, no, this is good. 
You make your way up to Jerusalem, you look around, and there's all these other Yahweh worshipers, not always Jewish ethnically, but they are all Yahweh worshipers. And because you've been reciting Psalm 133, you go, oh, this is good. This is where the good life is found. That is an incredible way to shape and form the gathered people of God. So this is a really beautiful psalm, and I don't think, uh, you know, God was, uh, I, I don't think he just liked the tune. I think it was by design as they're heading up to Jerusalem those three times a year. So this psalm, like I mentioned, I think it works, though, on three different levels of this unity. So you kind of say, okay, unity is really good. It's like perfume. Okay, great, great. What kind of unity? What are we talking about here? And the kind of unity we're talking about, I think there's three different levels of unity that this psalm is calling us into. And so the first one is very obvious. It's just the literal family level. Like I mentioned, the NIV isn't necessarily wrong for translating it as God's people. That's just an interpretive choice that I think misses the first obvious literal meaning of this word. When the psalmist puts this in here, I believe he's trying to call literal family, literal kinfolk to unity. And that's what it means at its most basic level. And can you think of a better time to rehearse that, again, as a family who's going up to Jerusalem? Because I can imagine you've been in the harvest, and families are hard. Anybody in a family business together? I doubt there's any conflict, right? Now you're in the beating sun, and you're harvesting plants. I imagine you would need a reminder of the unity that God's calling into. And if you think about the Bible, it's chock full of stories of sibling rivalry, jealousy, strife, even dads fighting their children. We don't have to get past Genesis 3, right? On 4, we have Cain and Abel. We have, in this patriarchal world, a lot is set up to pull the family apart, right? First of all, you have the oldest brothers receiving a double inheritance. Do you think he likes every time a new baby boy is born? There goes part of my inheritance. Imagine being the second born and your oldest brother gets sick and you start counting in your head. Well, I mean, we, we would like to add that upgrade on the house. And then you have brothers born to different mothers because of the patriarchal society. So you've got Isaac and Ishmael, you've got Jacob's sons. That doesn't create bonding. You don't feel completely united. You have slaves in their families. Do you think a slave loves the brother? I mean, this is the whole point of the gospel, right? You're no longer slaves, you're children, because he doesn't want this infighting. And you're expected to live under the rule of a paterfamilias, the head guy, in a best-case scenario. Your head guy leads your family to faithful worship of Yahweh and to love of each other. That's best-case scenario. How many of y'all have ever seen best-case scenario in the scriptures until Jesus comes? We see it. We see the striving. We see how hard it is for families, literal families, to stay united. And so now your whole family, all 75 or so of you, your father, his wife, wives, you know, the sons and their wife, maybe wives and their children, and then their slaves, and then their slaves' families, and on and on we go. And they're all expected to come together and make their way, that 202-kilometer walk, maybe farther, depending on how far they've scattered, up to Jerusalem. And as they go, they're going to share tents and lodging. They're going to sacrifice animals and worship the same living God. And you know, up until this moment, you haven't really been getting along. And now you're making your way up. What do you think the impact of this psalm would have? I'd like to imagine that because God is good, this psalm instructed and it reminded and it called brothers to seek forgiveness and to extend forgiveness. And it reminded them that their unity as Yahweh worshipers and as a family of God 
is a really beautiful thing that's meant to be protected. A couple of thousand years later, and we're still fighting that same human tendency to strive in our families. And we don't make it up to Jerusalem three times a year, but it is still good and lovely when we as family members find a way to remain united to each other. Now, I am not calling for sameness, and neither is this psalm. You're going to have robust disagreement with your families. It's not calling for sameness, but it is calling for oneness, being united to each other. Psalm 133 is calling us to be good family members, to be good parents, good aunts, good sons, good daughters, good siblings, because the family is important to God. Now, every time Martin and I preach on unity, it's important that you all hear me say, I am not talking about situations of abuse. If you find yourself in that situation, please find a way to get free, get the help that you need. I am not saying that. But I am saying, and Psalm 133 more importantly is saying that in areas of disagreement over politics, lifestyle, theological differences, style of parenting, home churches, the teams you root for on Saturday and Sunday, it is still good and pleasing when we find a way to allow our love to keep us united despite our differences. And I have seen a trend in our families, and I am saying this to the young people, to let go too quick. If you're willing to hold on and keep loving and work through those differences, then you will find out what Psalm 133 is saying about a good and lovely thing. Families are hard. They are hard. So Psalm 133 calls us to love harder. And when we do, it even dares to call that good and lovely. The first way that Psalm 130, the first level that Psalm 133 calls us to unity is at that family level. The second level is at the national level. Mount Hebron was uh, known for its heavy dew, but it was also in the northern kingdom. And Zion is in the southern kingdom. And many scholars see those references to the northern kingdom and southern kingdom as a reminder that Israel was always supposed to be united in their worship of Yahweh. They had a very bitter split after King Solomon's death. And Rehoboam took the north and Jeroboam took the south and they were never brought back together. And what many scholars believe is happening in 133 is those references is also a reminder, hey, you're supposed to be united as the entire nation of Israel. So in other words, how good and lovely it is when the nationality doesn't separate our oneness in worship. And there was, listen, there was no love lost between those two kingdoms. The north and the south, they did not like each other and this should have never been. Like as a people, they were God's people subjugated in Egypt and he rescued all of them. And he said, I'm gonna give you the land and then he gives them the land and suddenly they just forget what it means to be the people of God and forget that God rescued all of them and they should have been clinging to each other. They were a vulnerable people in the Middle East. They should have been clinging to each other. But as often the case, when success comes, it's much harder to cling. So now I want you to imagine you're that same family. You're making your way to Jerusalem. You're from the southern kingdom of Judah. The faithful one who didn't leave God is what you're thinking. And you get to Jerusalem and you see a family from the tribe of Asher. They're in the far north. And that family, during the split, during the north and southern split, that family defected and started worshiping God at a false site, something they should have never done. But after Assyria took them out and scattered this family, they had a moment of repentance. You know what? We should have been worshiping in Jerusalem all along. That's what it means to follow Yahweh. You know what? We as a family need to make our way back to Jerusalem. 
And so they make their way back at Passover. And you look across and you see somebody from the northern tribe. Are you happy they're there? Like, are you grateful for repentance and to say, oh, they're back? Are they still not your brother? Are they not a child of Abraham? Would it not be good and pleasing to welcome them? In this moment, Psalm 133 calls the worshipers of God to put aside nationalistic pride and instead put front and center the family bond of God's worshiping people. In the same way we should rejoice if it's Gentile or barbarian or sick man, anyone who says, I belong to God. The same way that Rahab was brought in, the same way that Ruth was brought in, the same way that Naaman was brought in, would you not also be happy for your brother to return and to come home? Psalm 133 not only spoke to worshipers back in the day with misguided nationalistic pride, but it speaks to us today. America is weird. Can we just admit that? Like, other countries are weird, too. Every time I say that, people are like, well, have you ever been to? And I'm like, no, I'm sure they're weird, too. Have you met humans? Like, we do this. Like, plenty of countries are weird. There are plenty of people like, do you want to live in? They name some country that I clearly wouldn't want to live in. I'm like, no, I'm just. But part of our weirdness is we have had this nationalistic pride in some parts of American Christendom that has reached an idolatrous fever pitch. Like, an America first language that doesn't allow room for Christ first, and it puts American priorities ahead of putting our brothers and sisters first. And Psalm 133 says, no, in the same way that the northern tribe should have been welcomed by the southern tribe, Psalm 133 is saying the same thing to us. It says, no, 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 we are supposed to put the first love of God ahead of our nationality, to the unity in worship, to the unity as the people of God. We as the people of God then should not back away or shy away from proclaiming that this allegiance to the people of God is good and right. And we should be the first to say, hey, that anti-unity rhetoric is not good and pleasing. To look after our brothers and sisters, whether they're American, Guatemalan, Korean, fill in the blank is actually what is good and pleasant. To put them first is what Psalm 133 reminds us. In other words, worship should always trump politics. Worship should always trump politics every single time. Now, I'm not a fool. I understand that politics are complex. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we can't have like really thoughtful political engagement. But if your priority is to put your country ahead of your worship, then you are wrong. And Psalm 133 speaks to that and reminds you that not only are you supposed to put worship first, but when you do, It's good and it's pleasing. That's the kind of unity that God is calling us into. The first level of unity is the family, the second nation, and then finally the third level. And the most important, I would argue, is that the level of the church. Lest you think that we in this room are off the hook because we're not kin, we're not actually ethnically related to each other, and we're not Israel, though many of us might be ethnically related to us, I don't know about you, but my family's doing that, uh, 23 and me or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want to meet anybody else. Please don't tell me. They're like, good news. You have a cousin. I'm like, why is that good news? I don't know. But, but lest you think you're off the hook, then those New Testament passages I read to you show you that Psalm 133 is very much about Christian unity today. Jesus reminds us that we are, in fact, brothers and sisters. And John 17 reminds us that Jesus' prayer for us is unity, that same prayer of 133. And interestingly enough, he says, hey, the reason why we want you unified is so that the world will know that I was sent here. 
unity is nothing short of a gospel issue. It is not a secondary thing. Jesus himself is saying, no, no, no. The unity of my people will tell a dying and lost world that there is a God who came to save them. That's the cost of unity. Goodness gracious, like our unity is not just so we won't bicker on the way to Jerusalem. It's so that a united church might show a divided world that there is a good Savior who can make the differences one. But as I was reading through the commentaries for Psalm 133, it was like the commentators were all just really bleak. I mean, they were just like, this one commentator says this, he says, the most spectacularly unanswered prayer in world history is Jesus's prayer in John 17, 20 to 23. Christian kinfolk live in breathtaking disharmony. And this devastates their witness as it removes the goodness and the loveliness from them. It removes their joy and surrenders their blessing. The psalm invites us to consider the loveliness of kinfolk living as one and to meditate on the images for this that it offers is to see if it inspires us to live as one. Breathtaking disharmony. Lord have mercy. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he credits much of Psalm 133 for his motivation to live with 25 other vicars. During the time of Hitler, just his Third Reich devastating Europe. And somebody says, if there was ever a time to forsake unity and community, if there was ever a time to just go, you know what, I'm going to kind of do my own thing because there is a murderous tyrant on the loose. Like if there's ever a time to not break bread, to not work through conflict, to not have to be with people who might get on your nerves a little bit, that would be the time. But Bonhoeffer says, no, 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 because if you do that, you're not actually living the Christian life. He says Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. Christianity, the whole thing we're doing here means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. We belong to one another through and in Jesus Christ. Psalm 133 calls us to this really beautiful reality. Because we are in Christ, we belong body and soul to him, but we belong to each other. You belong to me, and I belong to you. And I'd like to think that you guys think that's a good thing, right? The reality is, is like, y'all chose this church. No, nobody, don't raise your hand. Most of you aren't being forced to be here. Don't, don't tell me if you are. I don't want to know that. But there, there's enough of what you like here. You chose us for a reason, and I love this church. I got to build it. Of course it looks a lot like me, right? So this unity is not the one I'm worried about. It's the other Christians, and I don't want to feed your imagination as to who those other Christians are. Somebody, each of you, somebody might have popped into your head or some type of person, right? But Psalm 133 takes seriously what Jesus did on the cross to accomplish. And every time you think to yourself, I can exclude or dismiss, you have to contend with belonging to others because of your union in Christ. If you are in Christ and they are in Christ, you are together. And Psalm 133 not only tells us this, it even dares to call it good and lovely. Would we? Would we call that unity good and lovely? Like, would we find a way to see the beauty in being united to each other because we're united by the Savior of our souls? And if not for Christ, we would all be lost. But because of Christ, and praise be to Christ, and Christ alone, we are being brought home to the Trinitarian God, brought home as siblings, even the ones that are hard to love. 
And I got bad news for us, guys. Sometimes we're the hard-to-love ones. Like, I know that I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I know by me preaching you all right now, there are many Christians who think we're, we're unfaithful right now. And y'all know what I want to say. But Psalm 133 calls me to say, those are our brothers and sisters too. Pick an issue. You're going to find somebody on the other side of it. You might be on the wrong side of it. That's the hard thing about theology. It's like we think we're right, but nobody's going to get to heaven and go, yep, aced it. Had it all right. No, we're going to get there and go, really? I hope they delete those sermons. Sometimes we're the ones that are hard to love, and how good is it when people hold on to us and still claim us as their own? Like I think about my mom. I was a difficult child, y'all. I was talking to Kimmy Dahlman. Her, her daughter, Evie, is going to be Greta Gerwig for Halloween. How cool is that? Like she's not going as Barbie. She's going as the one who made Barbie. Like I'm like, that's amazing. And I told her, I was like, I was such a difficult child that I, this is so not PC, and y'all have to forgive me for this. I didn't want to go Halloween shopping. But my mom is a, is a rule follower to her core. Imagine raising me when you're a rule follower. I, mean, I just made up fights because I was bored. And I remember my siblings would all go and they'd get their costumes. They were Power Rangers or whatever. Things. I, was like, I don't want to do anything. But my mom didn't want to take a child in no costume out. And so she let me go. This is so not PC. We might have to cut this. She let me go as a hobo. And so if you don't know, this is a person who just kind of lived homeless by choice. And the, the old school picture of a hobo was they had dirt on their face and kind of tattered clothes. And they'd have a stick with a little bag of their belongings on the back. And I would walk around like that house to house. And these poor people would go, what are you? And I'd be like, I'm just a homeless person. And my mom would be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that is the child my mother had to raise. And she never let me go. I embarrassed her. I wore her out. I was so difficult, and she never let me go. And when, you know, I grew up, and I learned some things. I'm a much better daughter now. We joke that I was the least favorite child. I was fifth out of three. And now I think I'm number one. Like, I really do. I tell my brother this all the time. Like, I think I got this in the bag, bro. That's what love and unity can do is it gives people the ability to grow up if we'll keep holding on to them. Psalm 133 calls us to unity in our families as the worshipers of God and as church members of the one and only true church. There is one church. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It means we are by definition united to each other. And not only is that a destiny for us, the psalm reminds us it is also good and lovely in that truth. And so what's our big so what? The world does disunity just fine. I don't know about you, but I just couldn't, I couldn't pull away from the news yesterday, just watching footage of Israel, just heartbroken. Unity is much, much harder. Disunity is easy. It's really easy. And usually in order to be united, someone has to die for it. And in our case, Christ did. And now he bids us come and die and find that in that dying to self is the good life. I am not calling for predatory peace. Do not hear this. You should rebuke racism and misogyny. You should have boundaries for narcissists. You should not let unrepentant sinners who are wrecking a community remain in it. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that you can hold on to people and disagree mightily, and if you hold on to them and you rebuke them and they keep holding on to you and they grow, then that is good and pleasing. And it's the only way any of us have ever grown. It's the holding on and the working out that the world then sees the gospel on display. 
And it's the holding on and the working out that we become more of the good and lovely people Christ is calling us to be. That is what I want us to be, is good and lovely, not because we're fake and kind, but because we cling to each other, trusting that God is working on us and working these things out. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and reminding us of this hard truth. It's easy to say that unity is good and pleasing. It is much harder to do. Strengthen us, nourish us, and remind us of the work of your son on the cross that makes all of this possible. May we be united to you, which gives us this great truth of union with each other. Help us to live that out, Lord. Bless my friends. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. If you all will stand, we'll sing.